Welcome to The Wood Podcast, where we explore solutions to some of the world's most critical challenges in energy and the built environment. I'm your host, Lauren Gallagher. Thank you for joining our episode on the race to resilience. As climate change puts mounting pressure on our growing world with increased threats from dangerous weather events, businesses and governments have a pressing need to take accelerated action. COVID-19 also brings a unique opportunity as communities seek to implement a just and resilient recovery. Today's experts will discuss recent initiatives that are helping to mobilize action, including the Race to Resilience campaign pioneered by the United Nations high-level climate champions. They'll also discuss the innovation, funding, and partnerships required for businesses to thrive in today's environment. I'd like to introduce Peter Hall, Wood's Vice President and Global Director for Sustainable and Resilient Infrastructure. Driving strategic partnerships with the Resilient Cities Network and the Resilient Shift, a new joint initiative to help shape critical projects, he is working to bridge infrastructure gaps, promote responsible investment, and create a more climate resilient future. We're also joined today by Tyler Jones, Vice President of Wood Central Gulf Coast Region Operations. Leading programs to reduce impacts from major natural disasters like Hurricane Harvey, he challenges the status quo of financial forecasting and business development to drive forward-looking projects and build community resiliency. Tyler is based in Austin, Texas. To kick off today's discussion, Peter, I'd like to start with you. In the lead-up to the UN Climate Change Conference, or COP26, on behalf of Wood, you've been working with the Race to Resilience campaign champions who are driving change. A sister campaign to the Race to Zero, their ambition is to build resilience for 4 billion people by 2030. How is resilience playing a prominent role in the net zero journey, and how can we build back better with this in mind? Thanks, Lauren. Yeah, the, uh, it's really interesting with the race to resilience and how important it is right now to sit alongside the race to zero. So as our clients uh, decarbonize their assets and their services, we, we have to do it, do it in a resilient way as well. And the infrastructure that gets you know new technologies to market around energy, it has to be done in a resilient way. And the challenge is enormous. Um, right now, the infrastructure gap is estimated to be $90 trillion dollars. And, and just by 2030, as much as 15 trillion. So when we build back better, we have to build projects that, that are planned, designed and constructed in the right way so that we can really deliver those projects, deliver community benefits and have those projects be built to last. So a lot of what this comes down to is uh, building our projects proactively, looking at future risks, building in those risks, and at the same time, intentionally building our projects so that we can uh, deliver services and benefits to communities that will, can really result in a just and resilient recovery that, that we need. Tyler, what does a just and resilient recovery look like? So I think it's going to look like infrastructure that can respond to shock and stresses in a change in climate, whether it's a hurricane, earthquake, or a fire. And then you'll see projects that leverage and integrate sustainability across their life cycle creating assets that build towards a net zero world and an improved quality of life in the cities where we live and work. You know, a good example is something that the state of Texas is doing and that they're conducting a resilient recovery program. That program is called the Post-Hurricane Harvey Flood Studies Program, which is aired towards 
understand the impact of flooding across the state of Texas. You know, that program has three main components, starting with communications with key stakeholders, also a technical component and some detailed 2D modeling, modeling and hydraulic analysis, and then using that information to recommend sustainable mitigation projects to minimize future damages from flooding. And so ultimately what we're looking to see is more resilient city networks where cities are working to embed resiliency into recovery plans and view enhancing social equity as a top priority for recovery. So U.S. President Joe Biden recently introduced a $2 trillion plan to rebuild infrastructure and reshape the economy. How can resilient infrastructure help communities? You know, last year alone, you know, the U.S. faced uh, they said 22 extreme weather and climate-related disaster events uh, with a cumulative price tag of, of over $100 billion in damages. So this is more important than ever. And so not only looking at how projects are built, where they're built, how they're protected from climate risks, but also safeguarding critical infrastructure and services at the same time as, as defending vulnerable communities. So looking at infrastructure and how it can really improve equity and opportunity. The second piece is interesting is really maximizing the resilience of land and water resources to protect communities. So the whole concept of green infrastructure and using the natural environment to contain floods and, and, and various climate risks. So those are just two of the examples of how this bill is really going to, um, if it's carried out, could just have a, a generational uh, impact through infrastructure. In the race to resilience, there's an ambition for businesses to mainstream climate risk management into all their plans and investments by 2025. What actions should companies take to reach this target? So basically, one of the things we, we have to do now when we look at projects is not just look at the project itself, but look at what the project provides. And another big part of the race to resilience, you mentioned at the outset, you know, the race to resilience is really trying to impact by 2030, 4 billion people. So one of the key things right now is how do we measure that and how can we do it in a transparent way and how can we scale solutions? So that gets to innovation. So projects right now, they really need to uh, embed and integrate the sustainable development goals and environmental social governance as a new way to develop projects. In fact, the investor community is really starting to ask for how projects can, can have more purpose and more impact. So that's something that's going to require innovation. And one of the things we're looking at now is, is how technology can take our projects and link to the social benefits. So that's kind of a new way of uh, looking at technology. And then it's linked link directly to funding. So the business sector right now is really looking for, for this. In fact, uh, just recently, the uh, California came out with a new climate advisory group saying that uh, for every dollar they spend mitigating climate, it, it can save at least $6 in disaster response. So, so countries and cities and clients are really looking closely at this return on investment uh, to adjust the funding gap. And we really have to look at project performance um, and, and the full life cycle of a project as we build back better. How can businesses leverage the power of partnership to achieve a climate resilient future? Yeah, I think that's going to start with collaboration between cities, regions, and businesses. And there are examples out there where cities are currently collaborating with businesses, whether through knowledge sharing, business development, 
planning policy, project implementation, or financing. And I'd like to use City of Houston as a really good example, as Mayor Sylvester Turner has been a long-standing climate champion for the City of Houston. And as you know, he served as mayor during Hurricane Harvey. And as part of the city's recovery efforts, Mayor Turner launched Resilient Houston and a Houston Climate Action Plan. And part of these efforts, the city recently approved the Sunnyside Solar Project, which is a public-private partnership to convert a 240-acre closed landfill in one of Houston's most vulnerable communities into the largest urban solar farm in the nation. So this project's a prime example of how cities can work with businesses and communities to address longstanding environmental just concerns, create green jobs, and generate renewable energy in the process. A recent report from the Environmental Defense Fund found that 92% of business leaders believe emerging technologies can boost sustainability. What types of technologies need to be adopted and deployed to build more resilient infrastructure and systems? Yeah, technology is becoming, of course, a, a huge part in how we deliver our projects, measure our projects, and, and also bring in different partners. And you know, one of the things is there's, there's a lot of new technologies out there, and we're, we're involved in some of these. We're measuring um, carbon emissions on a real-time basis. For example, our partnership with Microsoft is, is helping our projects adjust and, and really focus on the right bent, uh, impacts from their projects. Those kind of technologies, um, tracking, tracking data around equity and social impact and, and, and project performance are becoming a really important part of, of sustainable infrastructure. Another really important piece that we're seeing now is downscaled technologies to look at climate risks. So heat, flooding, um, seismic, even, even some of the issues around COVID and pandemic issues, but looking at those in a downscaled way. So when we build projects in a city for a client, for a company, we're looking at the right data in the right place over the right time horizon. So that, that's a great example of linking technology and vulnerability into building projects that can deliver. Corporations around the world are experiencing increasing pressure from a broad range of stakeholders to drive ambitious mitigation to reduce long-term climate costs. In 2018, 215 of the world's 500 largest companies reported climate-related financial risks of just under $1 trillion. What steps should businesses take to create a structured process to map assets, deliver solutions, and measure impact? Yeah, it's a big challenge. And, and But some of the steps we're seeing right now, and it's coming from a range of leaders, and it's also coming from a range of companies and cities that are maybe not as far along, but are, but are learning from other uh, clients on how to do this. And a lot of it is how do, how do clients maximize the money they have? So you look at some of the uh, bills coming out now, the U.S. infrastructure bill, uh, the, the uh, Canadian infrastructure bill, you know, huge stimulus packages around infrastructure and building back better. They both have a huge component around uh, equity and jobs and, and basically linking infrastructure to impact. So for a lot of our clients, it, it's a bit of a change and you need a roadmap to do this. You need to build these factors into a project early. And by doing that in what we call the pre-feasibility stage, you can then be, link your infrastructure to the finance and also demonstrate that there's resiliency coming out of those projects. 
Yeah, I, I think a focus on hardening uh, infrastructure, uh, whether it is you know roads, bridges, water treatment systems, any measures that need to be taken to harden those infrastructures to make sure they can withstand future impacts, again, be it a, a tornado, a hurricane, a fire, whatever that natural disaster may be. And what we're seeing, you know, we, we've developed uh, a, a project uh, or approach called ADAPT, where, where you basically uh, analyze key vulnerabilities. Tyler mentioned hardening assets. We need to know what, what the future impacts are you, you, you uh, build towards. You protect critical assets so that they last. You deliver projects so that they could deliver over the lifespan, and then they transform. So they, they can basically deliver the outcomes for communities, the social impact, the social uh, outcomes that are needed. And that's a big part of what we're seeing in these infrastructure bills, which is great to see. Um, you know, I'll give you a couple examples. You know, some of our green infrastructure projects where we're building, you know, new riverfront uh, parks. It's not just a park. It's actually also capturing flooding. It's creating wellness. It's creating access to jobs. So a lot of these projects have multiple benefits. And the last thing I'll say is, you know, this you mentioned at the outset, Lauren, you know, the race to resilience, you know, in four billion people. It's a huge goal. How, how are you going to measure that? And the only way this is going to happen is if we change the way we do projects um, early and measure outputs. So, Peter, I'd like to add to that, that the state of Texas and other states and cities are going in and being proactive and developing an economic development plan with specific goals. And some of those goals include organizational capacity, where they enhance resiliency to climate hazards and economic disruptions to expand market access, uh, taking a really hard look at critical infrastructure projects and focusing on and moving forward with projects that will build on unique regional assets and competitive strengths, uh, understanding housing and their building stocks to sustain a housing investment, as well as leveraging existing building stocks and mitigating climate risks and impacts, knowing and understanding your economic development and diversification, which encourage economic inclusion and diversity in communities. And then finally, that quality of life encouraging quality of life improvements through placemaking and environmental enhancement in order to attract families to visit and reside within a specific region. And one last question. What's a common misconception about the race to resilience? Yeah, one, one common mis misconception, I think, is that uh, it's going to cost more money to build projects that are resilient. And although there may be more cost if you build something at a higher elevation or in a different location, or with different materials to withstand future shocks, the, 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 the return on those projects of both not failing and also being built in a better way, it, it's, it's huge. So I talked before about the return on investment. I think it's a misconception that it's, it's more work to do that, but increasingly now uh, it's, it's clearly uh, economically, you know, the way to go to build projects in a resilient way. The other chain misconception is infrastructure doesn't have the opportunity to create social change. And I think we're seeing a big shift in infrastructure is more than just a project. It delivers critical services to communities, clients, supply chains, customers. And, and that shift, um, I think, is quickly happening. And uh, it's definitely a change. Yeah, Peter, I'll add to that also the shutdown and the cost impact from those shocks. And I'm just always amazed at how companies are calculating after that disaster 
how to get back up and running again. However, that loss of income and that impact of that shutdown, the critical infrastructure will go many, many years. And you know, we've just got to be proactive and move forward and executing things to prevent that from happening. And that brings us to the close of this episode of the Race to Resilience, where we explored the innovation, funding, and partnerships required to help global businesses and cities adapt to the impacts of climate change. If you'd like to connect with today's guests or explore related insights, please visit us at woodplc.com podcast, where you can also subscribe and receive updates to the Wood Podcast. At Wood, our curiosity keeps us pushing, innovating, making the impossible possible. Thank you for joining us today on this journey. Take care and be well.